0: Order in the court. <laughs> uh, couldn't resist, sorry. Hi, uh, I'm Sydney Toon. I'm a senior counsel at Pillsbury in the San Francisco office where I uh, chair the copyright practice and I do intellectual property and entertainment law and my practice kind of focuses on the convergence of entertainment and intellectual property and i um, on my left is uh, Professor David Nimmer, Mr. David Nimmer, or David, depending on uh, what you want to call him. And David is in the L.A. office of Arella Manella, and he's also the author of a treatise you may have heard of, Nimmer on Copyright. Um, and our full bios are in the material, so we're not going to take any time um, introducing ourselves in any greater detail, but you can check us out. So... In thinking about what we wanted to do, I'm just going to give you a little road map. We're going to start by talking about... Um I started thinking about what, what would be helpful to this crowd? What would be of the most interest rather than just a standard you know, hot topics, recent cases and copyrights? And so I was thinking about what kind of issues my clients in this space often ask me about. So I'm going to be addressing... Well, first we're going to start with Professor Min, uh, Nimmer is going to talk about a very significant recent uh, case on appropriation art, a cop- big copyright case. And then I'm going to be talking about Um, sort of the issues surrounding uses of music um, in this converged space maybe some of the less obvious ones and then um, David is going to be talking about the sampling cases so we can make some sense out of uh, sampling and then I'm going to end with a discussion of sort of uh, what you can do to protect yourself, no matter what side of the equation you're on here, just some different practical things about how to protect your rights or how to keep from infringing rights or if you do, how to minimize your harm. Okay, so with that introduction, we're going to start with David. Take it away. Good.
1: Well, first, let's react to what we just heard. I think a number of people were uh, in this hall beforehand. So there was a very pregnant issue that was raised, and I'd like to address it. And, Sydney, maybe you'd like to address anything else that was that came out of the previous panel. question is about pre-'72 works. Uh, if you have works by the, the Beach Boys or the early Beatles, uh, they're protected under state law. Unlike later works from after February 15, 1972, they're protected under federal law. So we heard that that question in the previous panel. What is, it, what is to be? Does the Digital Millennium Copyright Act apply? Uh, after all, that's national law. Shouldn't there be one issue of uniformity? And the answer is yes, there should, but there simply is not. Congress decided very deliberately in 1976, to take all the old works that were protected, that were already created, and were protected under state law, and to federalize them, with one exception, and those were the pre-1972 sound recordings. So fast forward to today, in, in 2014. Uh, we've had two cases go uh, to the Ninth Circuit and the Supreme Court involving pre-1972 sound recordings. What case went to the Supreme Court about pre 72 sound recordings? Anyone know? It's called Grokster. Grokster. Count one of the complaint, violation of Title 17 because they're federal copyrights. Count two of the complaint, violation of Section 980A2 of the California Civil Code because they're pre-1972 sound recordings. And so because we have that dual legacy, we still have state law protection. Now, it doesn't matter how much Congress legislates about what it wants in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and how strongly it feels that should apply Congress has no ability to regulate what the states do any more than it has the ability to say we strongly feel you should drive on the right side and from now on everyone in Singapore needs to drive on the right side. They don't have the ability to say that. Now they could tell the states we want to federalize all your old sound recordings and if they did that then we'd have one uniform national law. Failing that, they've let the states regulate it and state law does not incorporate the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Therefore, there is no defense for Pandora to exploit these works and to say, we're going to pay the statutory license, because that's a creature of of federal law. But things, of course, get much more complicated. Then the question becomes, has Pandora implicated state law? Well, what Pandora does is primarily to perform works. So now we have to ask the question, does pre-1972 state law include a performance right? And the answer to me strikes me as, obviously, no. Because if there were a pre-'72 ride of performance, then all the terrestrial radio stations would have had to pay for all their broadcasts of the Beatles. In fact, Joe's bar or or, uh, uh, Yoshi's uh, sushi joint around the corner would have to pay any time the radio played an old song. So we have a very, very complicated mixed heritage in law. Uh, And in this particular instance, to me, the answer is straightforward. It does not make a lot of sense. In fact, it does not make any sense. But it's the product of our mixed heritage. And if you don't like it, you should lobby Congress to federalize old 1972 sound recordings. So I just wanted to make that comment about the prior panel. Anything in the prior panel strike you?
0: Oh, there were a lot of things, but um, since I rep- represent, I represent uh, both sides of this. I represent content companies, content owners, copyright owners, but I also represent a lot of technology companies and new uh, companies that have new uses of music and other content. So it's a little difficult for me to take a public position. But I will say this about that: copyrights are very complicated, and that's why we love them. <laughs> Should I go into? Go for it. Okay. Yeah. I want to
1: get into the sampling issue uh, through a very recent case that is not a musical case, and I want to use some slides that my friend and colleague uh, Peter Manell of Berkeley uh, used to illustrate a recent case. So the Second Circuit handed down uh, its most, the, the most recent major fair use decision in the country. It had to do with this book, Yes Rasta, the, the plaintiff, Patrick Carey, who spent six years living among the indigenous people of Jamaica and gradually gaining their trust such that he could photograph them. Uh, and there's a series of haunting images that are in this book. Uh, It's a coffee table book that sells for a hefty price. Now over the course of his six years he did not make a lot of money. Uh, This was a labor of love rather than uh, a great profit making venture. That doesn't mean that nobody's making money. Uh, Along comes appropriation artist Richard Prince uh, and we're going to see that he's made quite a bit of money. What has he done? He's taken various images from the book Yes Rasta uh, and altered them, mainly by putting lozenges uh, over the mouth uh, and eyes of various characters. We're going to see a, an addition as well. Here's one addition, uh, airbrushing a guitar in uh, on the, uh, the Rastafarian man. Another thing he does is to add a lot of naked women uh, into uh, the images that existed. That's the same image once again. Uh, and now here's another uh, in which we have the, the subject image from Patrick Cario repeated. You kind of have to look for it and determine where it is. Uh, uh, and uh, by the way, did I mention that he likes to put a lot of naked women in <laughs> Uh, okay, so as a result, uh, Patrick Carey filed a lawsuit against not only the appropriation artist Prince, but also his fine arts publisher of the catalog, and the gallery, the Gagosian gallery where where the show took place. In district court, Judge Batts said, well, well, let's look at his purpose. What was his purpose? Well, he says, I want to get the, the, excuse me, what is the defendant's purpose? Why was he copying? Quote, I want to get as much fact into this. Uh, I, uh, uh, I want to do the same thing that, uh, that Cariou originally did. And then he said, you know, I really don't have any interest in the original meaning. I don't really have a message, is what he said. Uh, so why did he put guitars in? Well, uh, the message is, according to the testimony that the defendant gave, it related to the fact that men had become guitar players. Well, not surprisingly, the district court denied the fair use defense and held in favor of the plaintiff. In fact, the plaintiff had lost his opportunity to do a rival showing because the uh, New York art gallery scene had said, look, this has already been done. Prince has already done that, that exhibit, so now we're no longer interested in you and you having your exhibit. On appeal, the Second Circuit reversed. Uh, and they said, what is critical is how the work in question appears to the reasonable observer, not simply what an artist might say about a particular piece or body of his work. So here you have the district judge who denied fair use as to every count of the complaint. Along comes the Second Circuit and reverses as to almost every count of the complaint based on its own observation of the work in question. Now what about the fact that uh, the defendant had lost his market because of this, which is one the fourth fair use factor, one of the most crucial things. Well the Second Circuit said, you know what, the reason that this rival gallery owner canceled the show is not because it had already been done, but rather because she mistakenly believed that Carew had collaborated with Prince on the Gagosian show. Just think of that for a moment. Let's say that the author of uh, Life of Pi, Jan Martel, has a deal with Sony Pictures to make a movie. And along comes an unauthorized fly-by-night company and makes a movie, Life of Pi, and puts it out. Uh, and now Sony says, well, we're canceling. Well, according to the Second Circuit, if they canceled in the mistaken belief that it was already authorized, oh, no harm, No foul. Uh, you know, that's, that's not a problem. That's not an effect on the potential market. Well, that's the reasoning of the Second Circuit in this case. So I want to ask you, the esteemed members of the audience, here we have two of the actual uses. Here's plaintiff's photograph that was taken. Fair use one, it was re- re- replicated four times. Fair use two was replicated two times. So here's your quiz. According to the Second Circuit in its decision, summarily reversing almost every count, but not quite every count, What's true is who wants to vote only one is fair as a matter of law? or Who wants to vote only two is fair? Or neither is fair? Or both are fair? Who wants to vote only one is fair as a matter of law? Raise your hand high. Nope. Who wants to say only two is fair? Nobody? Who wants to say neither is fair? Okay. who wants to say both is fair? Well, I'm with you because I would not have voted for number two. But that's what the Second Circuit decided without any rationale at all. So it's an extremely broad look at fair use which I find rather incomprehensible. But what I find even worse is, and most amazing is the following. The images that I put up for you came from the appendix to the opinion. And the appendix to the opinion that's published along, not only in the Federal Reporter, third series, but also on the web, the Second Circuit has included those things in blue. Those things in blue are live links, meaning that the Second Circuit included every one of Kerou's images in high-resolution quality that I put here in front of you. So now we see, and, and why is that? Is that because Prince had put them on the Internet? No. Is that because the court had ruled that Internet exploitation is legitimate? No. It's because the Second Circuit took it upon itself to punish Mr. Carew for bringing a cause of action for copyright infringement by expropriating all of his art and putting it onto the Internet. <laughs> Uh, I don't really agree with this ruling uh, <laughs> but I wonder why the, the court ruled that way uh, well to my mind the, the key is that uh, the court forgot to go back to the verse in Leviticus 19.15 uh, which says you know what courts your fundamental obligation is to do justice don't favor the poor man just because he's poor don't favor the rich man just because he's rich But with justice you should rule Well, unfortunately, the Second Circuit did not take that admonition to heart because I quote from what the Second Circuit said. Look at that poor schnook who made $8,000 in six years and compare him to the defendant. His guest list includes Jay-Z, Beyoncé, Damon Hurst, Tom Brady, Anna Wintour, Brangelina. He made $10,480,000 by selling these works. Of course we're going to vote with him. Well, that's the ruling in the Second Circuit. And I want to contrast that with something that happened in the music sphere quite a number of years ago. Here we have a song, I remember it from my youth. Maybe some of you are young and are old enough to remember it as well.
2: With a little while from now, I'm
1: Okay, kind of a forgettable tune, uh, but in any event, Biz Markie, one of the early uh, rappers, uh, decided to use it, and I have a very truncated portion. You have to listen for a minute and forty-five seconds before you're going to hear this port, this portion. But if you did listen the whole way, you'd get to this. <laughs> Well, if you were the representative, the lawyer representing the defendant, Bismarcky, you would know that this, things were not going to come out well for your client. Once you read the first line of Judge Duffy's opinion issued in the Federal Supplement, which began, Thou shalt not steal has been a, a, a watchword of humanity <laughs> since biblical times. Uh, he proceeded not only to rule against Bismarcky uh, and to say this is absolutely indefensible, but to refer him for criminal prosecution by the United States Attorney's Office uh, for having violated the copyright for profit, which indeed is technically a criminal offense. So the gyration in the law that we've seen is just about as, well, 180 degrees does not even begin to to encapsulate it. On the one hand, we have someone who at at the outset of the sampling era took a little bit, didn't even copy it exactly, he just did his own version that sounded quite a bit like it. And he loses. And in fact, judges promulgated a rule at that point. Any sampling is illegitimate. If you want to sample even three seconds, you have to get a license. There's been a lot of water under the bridge since then. But that was the rule then. And today, we have the Second Circuit giving an unbounded view of appropriation. Uh, if you simply translate it from the visual realm to the oral realm. Uh, you'd have to say that what Bizmarkey did is absolutely fine. In fact, it, he's to be celebrated, particularly if he could get Brangelina to come to the, to the recording <laughs> studio with him. Um, so I, I just comment this on this uh, as a way that uh, the law tends to whip saw us uh, as we as we observe it over the course of time, uh, and to get the juices flowing, to get your reaction, the audience reactions. But we'll, okay, let me let me turn to you before I come back here.
0: Oh, okay. So we
1: can get audience or you or...
0: Well, I just had a couple of things I wanted to add to that. So um, what David didn't mention, but I think it's kind of interesting, is that, well, first of all, appropriation art. Isn't that an interesting title for this type of art? But anyway, um, in the lower court in that Prince case, not only were they found to be... It was found to be copyright infringement, but the gallery owner as well as the artist, was found to be personally liable for willful copyright infringement. It was an extremely serious uh, infringement. It wasn't the kind of borderline gray area where, eh, you know, it's hard to tell, no real harm. So I think overall it was kind of shocking. And then the interesting thing is that when there was some outcry after the decision or a lot of criticism and a lot of discussion, a lot of um, heated discussion, the uh, supporters of the decision's line was, it's really only about fine art. Don't get all excited. They're really only talking about a single work of fine art. But of course, the decision does not say that. Um, so, anyway, I, I personally think, uh, you know, I, I just don't agree with, <laughs> I don't disagree uh, with David's assessment of the case. Um, But one of the things about copyrights that makes it so interesting, besides the fact that it's very complicated, is it's so very unpredictable and it keeps you on your toes. So having said that, let me sort of segue. I don't have uh, um, some cool stuff for you to watch or listen to, but I wanted to talk, like I said, about sort of, you know, there's the obvious thing going on. Everybody's thinking of, like, the last panel, the Pandoras, the Spotify's music services. That's pretty obvious. But what I'm seeing a lot, and I'm sure you're dealing with a lot too, are a lot of other ancillary uses of music, and other types of copyrighted works in connection with um, this intersection of technology and music. So for example, the different types of uses, you might have little excerpts to promote the service, you might have advertising that's being used, you know, the advertising of whatever you have, your business has music. Uh, There could be ancillary uses of music on a website. I've encountered, well, we all know there's music in games, right? So we've got online games. Uh, We've got mobile. We've got video. Um, Obviously, usually has music. Film is up online. We've got uh, a lot of services that want to be able to display lyrics, which are also, of course, copyright protected. (laughs) Uh, we've got mashups, con- you know, there's just a lot going on contests, music contests, video contests that have music, and live performances that are being digitally um, performed. Let me just, before I, I launch into my thoughts, I want to kind of get a feel for the audience. Um, how many people here are basically generally familiar with copyrights? Perfect. And everybody pretty much already understands the difference between a sound recording and the song copyright, correct? Okay, good. All right, so anyway, so all of these things, you've got all these different types of uses of music and copyright works that people aren't necessarily focusing on. They're focusing, like I said, on the obvious music services. Um, You've also got a huge array of platforms now, which are obvious, but again, online, mobile, uh, other types of devices. You've got it in your vehicles. You've got it in the backgrounds of a lot of different... um, Spaces And while it doesn't seem necessarily like, wow, this isn't the cutting-edge music, think about it. Um, When you go to the mall, they used to have a CD playing. Not anymore. They've got a digital music service, Uh, the background music on the phone, in the elevator, all of that. Usually some kind of a digital service is providing that music. So there's a lot of music floating around in different ways. And then there's a lot of related content that people aren't necessarily thinking of. So, for example, you've got the uh, record cover Right, You've got posters. Music posters are often depicted. You've got things like um, musicians' photos and images and biographies and and other types of information about them. Artwork that's not a photograph, maybe not even depicting a person, but a lot of artwork in this space. and then you've got unexpected things, like you might have a shot that was taken that depicts, there was a case where it was a TV show, I think, that depicted a copyright protected quilt on the set. Nobody realized it was copyright protected, or you know there might be a poster on the wall, something like that. So copyrights can really jump out and surprise you. So I'm gonna just go really quickly through some of the issues that I, I deal with a lot with clients that come to me a lot with these questions, and I think it's helpful to kind of buzz through them quickly So, first of all, they'll say, well, is it fair use? This is fair use, right? And uh, one thing to think about is there's no bright line test. If you don't already know this, um, please. Just no, because I've heard them all, and I'm sure you have too, from clients. I've heard, well, I'm, I've i been told as long as I'm only using you know, two measures, it's fair use. I've been told as long as it's under two minutes, as long as it's one minute or less, I've heard them all. As long as it's not commercial, so yeah, you wait, don't charge wait, anything. Whatever, or you're not selling it. Well, yes, I'm a f- commercial business, fusing it in a for-profit way, but I'm not selling the music. Anyway, so the point is there's no bright line test it's a four-part statutory balancing test. You have to work through all four factors each time. It's subjective. It's difficult to predict. And virtually every copyright case begins by the court saying each copyright case turns on its own unique facts, which is copyright shorthand for the court saying I'll do whatever I want in this case, and I don't care what other cases you cite to me. They're, they're not. I'm not bound by them. So, you know, yes, there is fair use. There's no question that we have fair use and that there are some traditional uses that are very predictable, but generally speaking, um, it's pretty much difficult to predict. Now, there are certain types of fair use that get um, brought up to me a lot, in particular in connection with music. One is parody, and it's true that you can have a parody and it can be a fair use, But what you have to keep in mind, if you don't already know this, is that for copyright purposes, in order to be fair use, the parody must be of the underlying work itself, the copyrighted work that you used to to create the parody. A lot of people don't know this. I get this all the time from clients. Oh, look at this parody we created. It's fair use, right? And I'll look at it, and it's actually they're parodying themselves, or they're making a parody about some political issue. So that is not the kind of parody that's fair use under copyright law. Um, Sampling is another uh, area of... uh, People want to talk about fair use a lot, and David's going to cover that a lot, so I'm not going to talk about it very much, except to say keep in mind if someone is asking you about um, sampling or you're considering sampling, there are many cases that have held that sampling is a copyright infringement, even if it's only a few seconds. And even if the digital music has been altered to the point where it is completely unrecognizable. So this is something you should look at very carefully before you uh, proceed without permission. Uh, Thumbnail images is another one that's fairly big because you'll, you'll find a lot of services. You can search and they'll give you the little image of the poster, the artist, the album cover, the festival, whatever it is. And of course thumbnail images have been found to be fair use in a few instances. So we know from the Perfect 10 case, thank you adult entertainment for making the law of the internet, um, we know that a thumbnail which is an image uh, from an image search So it's just showing you what the search results are is considered fair use. But if you click on the link and go to the full-size image, that is not necessarily fair use. And we know from the Grateful Dead coffee table book, which I don't remember what it's called, that if you have a very small image of a poster in a history book where it's showing the poster from every single Grateful Dead concert that ever happened, that it's fair use if a particular copyright owner uh, denies permission. So, anyway, so fair use, maybe, maybe not. It's complicated. Be careful. Um, Is it in the public domain? Okay, so a lot of people don't know this and most people, most of my clients laugh at me when I say, but I still think it's important to know, if you don't know, that Any copyrighted work that was first published in the U.S. before 1923 is in the public domain. You don't have to calculate any further. You don't have to look at whether it was renewed, what happened, was it published without a notice, none of these complicated issues. So it may be that you can use old music when you are interested in doing something where you can't or don't want to get permission or a license. Something to think about. Um, You know, there is quite a bit of old content. So another set of issues, there's a sort of a bundle of issues um, about right of publicity. It's not exactly copyrights, but it's so highly related. I find they come up a lot, and that's why I want to mention it briefly. By the way, you'll see me checking my device here. I am not looking at my emails. I'm keeping track of the clock. <laughs> So anyway, just in case anyone doesn't know, right of publicity is simply a right that no one can make commercial use of your name, your image, your likeness, your persona without consent. Now remember, it's commercial use. And there's no federal law on point, so it's governed by state law. It's a mess in the sense there's a lot of different state laws. They're not uniform. They vary quite a bit. Uh, Generally speaking, California has the strongest law for obvious reasons. New York also is very strong but different. So if you have a right of publicity in New York and you die, your heirs are out of luck. It's not posthumous there in California. It's protected for um, a long time. Anyway, so right of publicity is something you have to think about because if there is someone who is personally identifiable, depicted... In, on the album cover that you're showing, in your description, you're using their name. If you've got a little blurb about their bio, anything like that, is potentially an uh, infraction, a violation of the person's right of publicity. Maybe not. It's hard to say. Yeah. Do you have a question? Sorry, is, there a,
2: is there a public persona, a private persona distinction the there?
0: not really if you have so it's not you so what you're saying is like if I have put my bio out there anybody can use it I mean yeah it could be it depends on the details it's hard to say
1: both celebrities and non-celebrities have a right of publicity so if that's the question yeah uh,
0: well that depends on the state okay right under California law Uh, under California law and and
1: Tennessee law which is the most restrictive because of Elvis Presley uh, uh, got a lot of suits there so in most states yeah everybody has a right of publicity
0: but, um, so, but they don't usually want to put me on their ad, you know, coffee can or whatever. But there was that Folgers Choice guy. He lived in Canada, and his friend came back from vacation and said, Hey, I saw your picture on this coffee can. Can you believe it? Did you know? And he said no. It had, he had done some modeling when he was very young, and Taster's Choice had been using his picture without permission on their packaging for over 20 years. And he recovered millions of dollars in settlement. So, uh, you know, he was doing okay. But, well, it depends on the circumstances. But generally speaking, what you would have there is a. Pretty informal form of license. It's a license, but it doesn't have money terms. So, with unless it says it is not terminable, then yeah, she could terminate the license because there's nothing in there that stops her from terminating. Unless
1: right? you had relied on it to your detriment, in which case there might be something called estoppel. Right. So, so it depends a, on the
0: circumstances. But that's not a that's a like you know there's this whole bundle of stuff. But generally speaking, you'd have a license, but it'll be a terminable license, and that's the problem with. Um, having your permission be informal because you don't know the terms so you, you know and, and also you can have an implied in fact license if somebody provides their picture or knows you're going to be doing something and you do it and they don't object that's a, an implied in fact license but again it has no terms so you know there can be a lot of disputes over what's allowed and what's not and oh we've got a yeah um, if, I a photo Wait, you, the it, if I take a photo of you
1: if
3: I take a If I
0: take a
1: photo of you, is it necessary for me to have a contract right here on the spot to make sure that I can reuse that photo, send it off to whatever?
0: Well, that's interesting. Okay, I'm skipping ahead to what you can do to protect yourself. That was on my, my topic list for that. So... Um, There are a lot of techniques. The number one best thing is a signed written release. Well crafted, signed written release that covers everything that you need it to do. But sometimes the client, sometimes people will say, I just simply can't do that. Here's why. You know, there's various reasons. And there's a lot of techniques you can use when you don't have a well crafted, signed written release. So uh, sometimes, uh, like a man on the street interview kind of thing, you can have a video release where either the videographer reads the form of release while the camera's rolling and the person agrees on the video or audio Uh, or perhaps they simply recite what they're going to do and then uh, the person agrees sometimes there's signage like you go to an event like this and they say we're filming uh, you, by coming in this room you're agreeing to, that we can use it for this that and the other thing if you do not want to be depicted sit over in the corner over there or maybe there's a taped area or there might be events where you say if you do not want to be uh, filmed and posted on our website don't come Uh, you should look at your tickets. Often on tickets there will be a permission to film you and also sometimes on programs. If you go to say a ballet or an opera or something where there's a program handed out, sometimes there's a permission. They tell you by being here we're informing you that we do this and you're giving us permission to do it. But again, that type of permission is only good for exactly what they knew. So if they know you're going to take this and you're going to use it in your brochure, but then you post it on your website, no, it's not covered by the release. So obviously the best approach is the signed, written release. But it's not always possible to
1: do. Okay, now there there is a question in the morning session about uh, termination of transfers. Uh, and uh, and, and the, uh, the individuals on the panel had, had no answer for it. I'm wondering, since I was not at every panel, how many people have heard today on any panel the question addressed of termination of transfer? Okay, fascinating. Oh yes, it was. Uh, okay. Well, yeah. Oh yeah, right. He asked the question. Yeah, but, be, but were you at a panel where it was addressed? Besides, you know. So, okay. Here's the question. I, I wanted to spend some time on it because this. It, yeah, last year was a crucial year. Uh, Nineteen seventy-six. Congress decided to extend copyright terms, and it said we're going to we're going to give a longer term of protection, but we're going to let people regain their copyrights. And they chose an arbitrary figure, 35 years. The act became effective in 1978. If you do the math, that means starting in 2013, there was the ability to recapture copyrights. So ever since 2003, the copyright world has been ready for this onslaught of litigation that was supposedly going to come in 2013. What was it going to be? It was going to be The Bruce Springsteens, or name name your recording artist of the world, was going to say, look, I gave up my rights in 1978, or let's say Deborah Harry and the group Blondie uh, that was recording right at the time. I gave up my rights in 78, boom, I'm taking them back. And that's essentially what the statute says. It's an Indian giver's law. It says, I gave my rights, you own them, and now I take them back. I don't have to have a reason. I don't have to pay anything. I don't have to state why. I'm simply going to reclaim my rights. So guess what happened in in 2013 when the onslaught of litigation was scheduled? Uh, It didn't happen, unless you can tell me about it. uh, I I don't know of every every case that's ever been filed. I didn't see it. Let's, let's talk about a minute what, what it would be and we can have, we can have an interactive discussion about it. Um, let's say, you, let's take Bruce Springsteen and we'll, let's just imagine for a moment that he was making 15% of the total and he's disgruntled and says, look, why should I give up 85%? I want to have 100% of my royalties back. That's great. Problem for Bruce is if he has the right to terminate, is he the only one who has the right to terminate or is everyone in the E Street banned? If you go to some of the, the, uh, the most famous recordings of all time, uh, Michael Jackson uh, and uh, Quincy Jones was the recording engineer, but there are 23 people listed as credited musicians, backup singers, engineers, etc. So let's just take round numbers. If you take 20 people, and if, if all 20 of them have the right to terminate, that means that each of them gets 5%. So now we'll translate it into the Bruce Springsteen concept. He's disgruntled that he only gets 15%. He terminates. Everyone else terminates. If there are 20 people who terminates, each of them gets 5%, and now Bruce is stuck with only 5%. So he's he suffered a net loss uh, by virtue of termination. So it's, it's a crazy scheme that has been litigated only on occasion with respect to very narrow rights. In almost every instance, the courts refuse to uphold what Congress said. They say, they say we simply refuse to believe that Congress intended this we like people to stand by their contracts, regardless of what Congress said, and, and, and they find ways around it. So uh, we're we're once again living with a kind of crazy quilt. So okay, I, I say that and I, and I ask for reactions about termination of transfer. You want to talk about termination transfer? No. I okay. So let's let's talk about termination transfer, and then we'll get we'll get to, we'll get to your question. And and, and yeah. Just some clarity. Um, Give him the microphone. That, what is it in reference to um, the song copyrights? Okay, all copyrights are subject to termination. If you're a novelist, you can, so- you can terminate your novel copyright. If you're a composer, you can terminate your composition copyright. If you're a, uh, a backup singer or, or the lead singer or a guitarist, you can terminate your rights in the sound recording. Uh, everybody Dance. It came out in 77, and since Bernard Edwards has passed away, obviously. But now Rogers um, had assigned his copyrights to Sony ATV. And what is, how would that... Well, really works from 1977 are also subject to termination, but that's under a different scheme. That's after 56 years rather than after 35 years. It was in starting in 1978, Congress imposed a 35 year uh, And then Congress also said who owns it? If, if you're, if you're the, the novelist, you own it. If you're dead, then it's owned by your surviving spouse and children who are alive 35 years later. If the children are dead, then it's owned by the grandchildren. So Congress was very explicit about, about who gets the rights.
0: And also, um, let me just add that it's any kind of transfer. So it applies to both an assignment and a license. And there's no new consideration that needs to be paid to reclaim the rights. So if you purchased or um, you know paid a lot of uh, money to get the license or to uh, get the assignment of the copyrights and someone is going to be terminating the transfer, that's a big problem. But I have to say, um, so in California, we have this a little bit of a glitchy twist of a problem, which is that there's a termination of transfer right on the one hand. On the other hand, there's this issue with statutory employees. If you're an independent contractor, if you hire independent contractors and the, there's a work-made-for-hire clause in the agreement, and then if the employer will own the copyrights, which will always happen and work for hire higher agreement, then the... Uh, contractor is considered a statutory employee for the purposes of California law, and the employer can end up, if you get audited, having to pay a lot of back taxes for things like workers' compensation, Social Security, and the like. So, I mean, they don't become an employee, but just for this purpose of collecting revenue. And in fact, during the dot-com boom, the EDD was fond of going down into Silicon Valley and auditing companies and sending them huge bills. Um, so I think it's important if you're in California and you're going to be having a work for hire to figure out or t- if you want an assignment or do you want to work for hire or- and you have to kind of think through this issue because the only exception to the termination of transfer is a work made for hire. That cannot be terminated. But anyway, so when I'm talking to clients in California and I explain this difference to them, um, they usually laugh in my face and say, what do I care if this gets terminated in 35 years? This is going to be obsolete in five years or less, right? Because this world we're talking about, this convergence of music and technology, is evolving so quickly that nothing will really matter. It's it's certain types of creative works can take on a lot of value over time. I mean, look, Van Gogh never sold a painting in his lifetime. Jane Austen published *Pride and Prejudice* first. She wrote it in the late 18th century, but she first published it in 1806. The book has never been out of print, and it still sells briskly today. And a lot of publishers have it out. It's made. They've made countless movies, TV shows, plays, whatever. Very popular popular work. But when you're in an evolving, quickly evolving setting, then it's not as important because The value is not going to grow with the technology copyright. The technology copyright is going to be worth nothing, whether it's software or something else. So, again, if you're in California, you kind of need to weigh this, but most of the time people laugh at me when I explain the termination of transfer provision because they just don't care.
1: Okay, good. Let's get to the the patiently waiting questioner.
3: Uh, This question kind of goes back uh, to something I think is... Possibly of relevance and interest to A lot of people in this room You were talking about sampling As a corollary to that An area that is really hot and growing Is the remix area And DJs and the popularity Of DJs and services that are being built Based on allowing DJs To upload their own mixes Of other people's content And build a, a service And most of them say Well I can do that because I'm protected by the DMCA I can take it down if anybody wants me to take it down. And, you know, we talk about transformation versus a derivative work. Where do remixes fit in that spectrum of, uh, is it derivative or is it transformative? And what about remixes and DJs? And the sampling issue, the licensing or permission issue in uh, in that part of the culture now.
0: Yeah, that's a really complicated, fun question. You want to start with that? Sure. Um,
3: it, uh,
1: the um, I'm amazed every time Girl Talk has a performance in Northern California that, uh, that it gets through the end without multiple lawsuits being filed. Uh, but, but it does. Uh, if, if we wanted to imagine 100% copyright enforcement coming on the scene, uh, it would be a Donnybrook of litigation. So it would be wonderful for all the, all, the, all the lawyers who are paid, but it would be a nightmare. So let's, let's just start to analyze it. First defense uh, that Girl Talk would have is I've only appropriated 15 seconds from this song and and nine seconds from that song, so I have not. I, I, my works are not substantially similar to the copyrighted works, and that is a that is a legitimate defense. On the other hand, there are cases that say when you take the the golden egg uh, out of something and maybe a riff that lasts five seconds long that's so distinctive does constitute. Something as as distinctive uh, as the, as the key scene in a movie, so he might win, he might lose on that. So I, I, well, I, I would say that as to some of the issues, he's going to lose. Next defense he has is fair use, as we already heard from Sydney. It's it's inherently case specific, and courts have, and as I try to illustrate, courts have gone off on on every different angle. So he could lose on fair use. Then you mentioned he would say, "I have a defense under the DMCA." absolutely not. Uh, First of all, if he's doing it live, then it doesn't even apply. If he were to upload his concert to the internet, he would also have zero defense under the DMCA. Now, it could be that if he put it on YouTube, that Google would have a defense. We don't know that it's infringing, so don't hold us Google responsible for what Girl Talk did, but the individual in question uh, would have uh, have no defense at all.
0: let me so, just say yeah, that's a really good point people need to understand, is that the DMCA is, design, the, the safe harbor for user-posted content, protects the ISP. It doesn't prote- have any effect on whatever copyright infringements were done by the actual poster. Okay, or the uploader, or the content creator, and then somebody else uploaded it. So it's really only the ISP that is protected.
1: The, you're right, the ISP or the OSP, the online service provider. Even if they're not providing connectivity, the Google is not your, your portal to the Internet, but they're providing online services so they have an immunity. So so that begins to answer how complicated it is. Did you want to follow up?
3: Well, only that the, uh, I'm specifically talking about the DJ community now. And the new works that are being created by DJs using remixes of existing recordings, and they're making a new work, and they're uploading it onto services that are building their services based on remixes, and the whole remix issue is, it's a little different than the sampling, Right. Um, and I don't think, uh, I don't really have an answer for my clients as to you know whether or not they can even do what I'm doing i mean there's there's dj's the club dj business is a huge business but that's being done in a you know pu- pu- public performance in a right. space the sound recording's not protected you know they can do that but once you start making a digital copy of it and uploading it onto a service that features dj's that has dj's signed up to allow them to upload their their mixes their remixes to a service
0: so in my view what this is is if you just look at a traditional copyright analysis they're creating a derivative work with pre-existing works there's no question about it now would it be a fair use you're in a gray area here once again we're in a we're in a situation where you know I like to say uh, the law runs on small legs short legs and the point is it's running really fast it's trying so hard to catch up but it can never catch up with what's going on in the creative world right Everything is evolving so quickly. The conduct is so... I mean, one person does it, then another. Now you say there's whole services. It's sort of an accepted part of our society. It's just like when peer-to-peer file sharing came on and there was a whole bunch of people that said, no, it's fine, it's okay, because we didn't have a case saying so. And when I talked to the teenagers of uh, the Bay Area, and I said, well, actually, it's copyright infringement, Explain why, oh, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, until guess what, Napster and the court agreed with me and suddenly I wasn't wrong anymore. Um, and I will say in their defense that most of the young people I know then started seeking out legal music, you know, and uh, anyway, but the point is that you 're a little ahead of the curve here, but a traditional copyright analysis this is a infringing, unauthorized derivative work unless they got permission from all the people who they remixed and, and mashed up i mean it 's just same thing with a mashup right and no matter what you call it. Um, And I think the defense would be it's a transformative use. Would that fly, not fly? We have to wait and see. There's a case. And, right. and the funny thing about copyright cases, not to sound cynical, so I gave you my first um, impression earlier, which is, you know, I'll decide the case any dang way I want. I'm not bound by precedent. Another one is I think that, again, off the record, but not really, uh, when, you, when you read copyright cases a lot, what you notice is the courts seem to decide who they think is wearing the white hat and who they think is wearing the black hat, and then they kind of mangle the law to get to the res- result they want. How and cynical
1: and how true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, 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 right, I agree and, and just one, one more dimension to it. Uh, it is an unauthorized derivative work unless it's fair use in which case it's perfectly fine. And if it's fine, then the, the mashup itself has a copyright. If it's not fine, then section 103A of the Copyright Act says that the penalty for making an unauthorized derivative work is you're denied a copyright in that. So therefore, the the original artist Having won a case of copyright infringement, can take the mashup and say this belongs to me now. It doesn't really belong to to that person, but the but the person, the mashup artist cannot exploit it uh, and because it infringes and has no copyright in it. So effectively, the original artist can then then expropriate it.
2: Uh, my name is Tom Murphy. I'm with the local chapter of the Recording Academy, and I've worked at many technology companies over the years. Um, And I want to zoom back to one fundamental question that has puzzled me for decades about um, we seem to see how many different technology companies want to utilize music for some other method, create new revenue streams, do different things, what have you. And so there's this desire to sort of have liberal use of music for other new purposes. Yet they also are startups who are creating patent portfolios with the intention of ensuring nobody does their thing without their permission. And so the difference between copyright and patent, um, I'm unclear on that. It seems both of them are intended to be ways that people can't use something without the creator's content or some sort of agreement, yet practically they seem to be used in very different ways with very different interpretations.
1: Uh, they are very different. For one thing, patent, if, if somebody has a patent, you cannot replicate that invention, even if you come up with it uh, on your own. Copyright is totally different. If you come up with a tune and it happens to be strikingly similar to somebody else's tune, that's fine.
0: As At long least as the, in theory.
1: Yeah, right. As, if the court believes you that you came up with it. But the Bee Gees once came up with a tune that was exactly note for note identical to something that a, a roofer named Tom uh, Sell had, note for note, it was identical, but they were believed that they came up with it on their own because they were in a chateau in the south of France and they had the tapes to prove it. Uh, it's, it was the song, How Deep Is Your Love? Uh, and the jury went against them, but it was reversed on appeal and, uh, and so, so therefore, yeah, the, the Bee Gees end up winning. winning
0: okay. This. It's your resident cynic again. <laughs> yes, those are very inconsistent positions because they are taking whatever position benefits them, right? So, you want the patent protection. You want to protect that, but you want free use of uh, copyrighted work. So, you're just going whichever way is more beneficial to you.
1: I will illustrate how Biz Markie ended his career. Just to go, just to go to the end of the uh, of the presentation. Um, uh, his his final album was that shows shows him appearing before the judge in which all samples have been cleared.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I uh, represented a uh, contemporary, really one of the leading contemporary ballet choreographers in uh, in the world and uh, in a copyright matter, uh, a very unfortunate copyright matter. And you will know who I'm talking about if you ever go to the ballet, and you'll notice that every title now of his ballets are followed by a copyright symbol, which I think is kind of interesting. It's like his commentary on copyrights. Um, I think we have time for one or two more questions.
2: Um, So going back to that... um, uh, that Incident with um, the Bee Gees. I know there was two incidences. Um, for one, George Harrison with "My Sweet Lord," and then Michael Bolton with "Love Is a Wonderful Thing." About this whole thing about subconscious infringement, yeah. uh, I don't know what is your yeah. opinion on that one, though.
1: Well, I mean, uh, the the elements of copyright infringement are one, the plaintiff owns a copyright, and two, the defendant copied it. So it has nothing to do with willfulness, intent, uh, conscious, unconscious. Uh, so the jury in the case of George Harrison, "My Sweet Lord." did believe that he copied the Chiffon song because there was a very unusual grace note there. Uh, and uh, yeah, the fact that it was subconscious d- was no defense. Michael Bolton was a completely different case. Uh, he had a song called Love is a Wonderful Thing, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, he was sued because uh, there was an old song called Love is a Wonderful Thing. The problem is there had been 45 songs going back to the turn of the century called Love is a Wonderful Thing. Uh, and to me, the song sounded very different. But um, uh, he, he was not charged with subconscious copying there. He, he actually, there was testimony uh, that he said, oh, I have all of your albums, uh, and the jury believed that, and thought that he, that he copied. Uh, even though, uh, to my ears, the work sounded very dissimilar, I can play them for you <laughs> if you're interested. So,
0: for copying, like David said, the two elements, uh, you know, they, they ax, uh, the uh, bleh, copying is can be very difficult to prove. Right, unless you walked in the room and they were at the photocopier and whatnot. <laughs> it happens once in a blue moon, but not very often. And so this test was developed if they had access to the copyrighted work and substantial similarity. And so in the really unfortunate case for George Harrison, um, basically what they said was because it was a top 40 song that received a lot of airplay when he was growing up and whatnot, he must have heard it. And therefore, even though he didn't intend in any way to copy it, and then the musicologists compared it, and the music was very similar, uh, and so the jury, for whatever reason, it could have gone the other way, they they kind of came up with this thing of, we're really sorry we know he didn't do it on purpose, and we're not saying he did it on purpose, but he heard the song, and, and the judge told us that if he had access to it and it's substantially similar, then that's proof of infringement. So... There was infringement. Um, I think it's a little unfortunate because if you think about it, we're all exposed to a myriad of Works that we may not even be thinking about. You're walking through a subway station, right, and there's a million posters. You Maybe you didn't even focus on it, or the radio's on, but you may not really be listening, or you, you, the TV's on because y- your spouse has it on, but you're really paying no attention to that movie. Wh- whatever reason, just because something's ubiquitous in society doesn't mean that someone as an individual necessarily had access to it. So I, I personally think that was an unfortunate decision, but it is what it is. However... Each copyright case turns on its own unique facts.
1: <laughs> so and, and, it
0: doesn't mean it'll repeat itself and, Yeah, We're
1: out of time, but I'll end with the following observation here. I just realized when Sidney was talking that uh, she says that, you're right, once in a blue moon there's evidence, there's direct evidence of copying because you actually see somebody going into the studio and copying a sculpture. Okay, but I just realized that in the future we're going to see what we just saw with Donald Sterling in terms of his rant being recorded in the living room. In the future, it's going to be people are going to be making a record of artists copying works, and then there'll be direct proof of copying.
0: (laughs) Uh, But they'll call it transformative use, and that's the magic buzzword. If you are reading a case or an article about a copyright matter, and you hear the use was transformative, you automatically know they're going to find that it was okay. If you read the use was not transformative, it was not okay. You know, what's interesting because you think it, when you transform a work, you're creating a derivative work, so that's not what it means. But these transformative use cases have focused on it being used for a different purpose. So I'll give you one example really fast. I know we're out of time, so I'll make it really fast. But there was a case involving this service called Turnitin, Um, So what happens, high school, I don't know how old you are, but some of us, we remember, like, actually giving our teachers our paper, but that never happens anymore. The kids all have to turn their papers in through a website, and it scans them for plagiarism. It compares them to a large database. And then... Um, If it approves the paper, it goes to the teacher. It sends it to the teacher. Meanwhile, it adds, automatically adds every paper that's put through it into the database for future comparisons, looking for plagiarism. And so four high school students sued, saying they infringed our copyrights. They copied our entire paper into this database, right? And we didn't want to give it to them. Now, of course, they'd give them permission. The terms of use give them permission, which is one of the things I didn't get to. But anyway, um, and what the court found was it was a transformative use because it wasn't, I mean, you write an essay for someone to read and think about or whatever. This was for being used so that software could use it to compare it for in a search for plagiarism. So it's that kind of... It's really a very different purpose. But, of course, that's not in copyright law anywhere. I mean, it's not in the statute exactly. And it seems to have kind of wandered in from patents somewhat. And then what I didn't get to say about right of publicity is that somehow it did a little dance from copyrights into right of publicity. So again, these these cop, both in copyrights and right of publicity, the courts are looking at was it a transformative use and if they want to find it was okay. That's a very helpful buzzword. So anyway, thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. <laughs>